Hello, everybody, and welcome to Parks Podcast. My name is Austin Parkinson. Special guest on the program this week, the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers and one of my favorite coaches in college basketball, Amy Williams, will join us. First, I want to talk about the Pacers and how proud I am to be a Pacer fan and what a fun year it was to watch these guys compete. Obviously, a lot of analysts thought that we got the short end of the stick with the Paul George trade. Clearly, we won that trade, and I think it set up the Pacers for an incredible future. We've got great pieces. Oladipo proved he's the guy. He's not afraid of the moment. Um, It was neat to see him actually struggle uh, in one of those games at home and then bounce back in Game 6 and and really lead us into Game 7, and he played well in Game 7. So it's now going to be nice for him. He's been in that moment. Uh, He's a great teammate. He's an easy guy to root for. He seems to embrace the city and what it means to represent Indianapolis. And, you know, if I'm a free agent, he's a guy that I would definitely, you know, definitely want to play with. The other thing is Sabonis. Uh, versatile big man, tough around the rim. You know, he really got hot in some of those late games. But, you know, what a pickup for only being, uh, I think he's like 20-some years old, 21 years old. The future is really bright in that area. The question becomes, what do you do with Turner? Do you continue to develop him? Do you use them in combination? Or is he a trade asset? Is he somebody that you could maybe get another wing scorer to go along with uh, Aladipo? Because I think that's going to be important. I mean, obviously, Collins was good in the playoffs. Uh, didn't shoot it quite as well as he did in the regular season. But, you know, you either need a strong point guard player or somebody else besides uh, Aladipo who can score. You know, bogeys, they're going to opt in. I'm sure the Pacers are going to opt into, into his contract. Uh, what a what a gem they found last year. And, you know, I think the Pacers are going to be set up to compete again next year. So kudos to the front office as a Pacer fan thrilled uh, with what they were able to do. As we're into the second round of the NBA playoffs, I want to touch on the Raptors-Cavs series right off the bat. I'll get into the fact that the Raptors, I don't think, are big enough to, to you know, rise to the moment and take down the Cavs. But with that said, uh, I want to touch on something with the Cavs and LeBron. Uh, One of the things that stood out to me in that series against the Pacers was he finally went down to the block and posted up on a regular basis. And I I text my assistant coach, Coach Fleming, and I said, "Why, why don't they post him up almost every play down the floor? Seems like every time he posts up, he either gets a basket or somebody gets to shoot a horse three. And it seems like it's something over the course of LeBron's career that he's kind of fought the coaches on. And if you remember back to when he was with Miami and they got down in a series, I think it was game six against the Pacers, and I could be wrong on the game, but he posted up like the first 10 possessions of the game. And I wonder why it doesn't happen very often. And, you know, you think of Spolstra, he had the backing of Riley to kind of influence that with LeBron. But now you really don't have that. Uh, Lou's not going to make him go down there. And so the reason I ask that is, you know, I keep hearing from everybody that's LeBron fans. um, Well, he's he's just overcome these these poor teammates. Well, I I have a little bit of a a different perspective on that. I mean, you know, Kyle Korver was an all-star not that long ago. You know, Kevin Love was a 25-12 and 12 guy. Now, don't forget, uh, Chris Bosh was a 25-12 and 12 guy and then had to adapt his game when he came to Cleveland. In fact, uh, he talks about on one of the podcasts that he was on how basically he had to turn into a jump shooter and he had to be comfortable with that role in playing with LeBron. So let's not forget how dominant Kevin Love was at his position. Tristan Thompson, you gave him $80 million. I mean, that wasn't by accident. He didn't get $80 million just because, you know, they felt like donating to the cause. 
has he not played as well? He's had some injuries. Yeah, he's had the Kardashian uh, curse. But other than that, I mean, again, a quality player. Green was a starter. Obviously, we know Hill was a starter. He was an important contributor uh, on the Pacers for many years. And then Jose Calderon was a starter for a lot of years. So, you know, we're sitting here talking about like he's got who's he got with him. He's got some guys. Then you think about, okay, well, Derrick Rose leaves. He's an impact player for Minnesota in the playoffs. Dwayne Wade leaves his buddy, the Banana Boat Brothers. He goes down to Miami and has a couple, you know, big-time games in the playoffs and really kind of gets back and, and, you know, we kind of remember the Dwayne Wade that we used to see. Isaiah Thomas goes out to L.A., starts to play really well. Obviously, that wasn't a great fit in Cleveland, but, again, not a bum. And then lastly, Crowder. I mean, I'm turning on the TV last night watching the Jazz game, and Crowder's making big shots. I think he had 15 or 17, and he's d up. So this narrative that continues to be put out there, that LeBron's not playing uh, with good guys, uh, I think is uh, is ridiculous. And uh, he is playing well. I do think they're going to win the series. I watched game one. I think it's a bad matchup for the Raptors. Uh, I think that, you know, you look at it, they've got Valanchunas uh, and uh, uh, the power forward inside, uh, Serge Ibaka. Playing those two bigs is not going to beat the Cavs. And the Cavs, I think, can switch their lineup quite a bit. And Valanchunas seemed to miss layup after layup. But I just don't trust Kyle Lowry. I think he's a great player. But when it comes to it, and I think every analyst has said this, you know, when they watch the NBA, when it comes to the playoffs, we'll see what happens with Lowry. And the other night, same thing. So uh, I'm not big on, on the Raptors. I think they've got a better team this year, but I still don't think, you know, if you're going to take down LeBron James, who, who arguably is still the best player in the league, um, you know, you're going to you're going to have to be able to have to finish games, manage timeouts better. The timeout situation at the end of that first game, uh, they boxed themselves in a corner, didn't have any timeout advance when they could have used it. So uh, stuff like that will come back to bite you. Celtic Sixers series, great series. I've been looking forward to this. Let's start out there. President Brad Stevens, once again, game one, uh, unbelievable. I mean, kind of the rest versus rust thing. The Sixers have been off quite a bit, but no Jalen Brown. We already know they don't have Kyrie. We know they don't have Hayward, but still no Jalen Brown. And they win, and they win pretty easily. Um, I don't think this is a great matchup again for the Sixers. The playoffs are about matchups. I don't think this is a great matchup. Horford can pull Embiid away from the basket. And because of his versatility, he can guard him inside. So he's a player that defensively can guard Embiid, but offensively can spread the floor and take him out. And if you look in that first game, the Celtics ran a lot of their stagger actions, a lot of their curl actions to bring him away from the basket. The other thing I think that the Celtics do a great job is they're going to run the Sixers off the three-point line. A lot of their three-point shooters, J.J. Redick, some of those other guys don't really do a good job of putting the ball on the floor. They're going to run them off the three-point line. And then I think Brad Stevens does as good a job as anybody. In series number one, Simmons just ran it up the floor every possession and transition. I saw some great pictures uh, on Twitter of three guys surrounding Simmons as he crossed half court. They build a wall. They talk about loading to the ball and slowing him down in transition. So I do think the Sixers uh, have the better team. Uh, they should win the series, but I don't think the Celtics are going to make it easy on them. And I think it's going we're going to see uh, the youth uh, come out a little bit more in this series. Warriors, Pelicans, Warriors are up 2-0. Again, we talk about matchups for the Pelicans. They're probably the one team, them and the Warrior or them and the Rockets, that pace won't matter. The Pelicans were the highest possession team in the league, points per possession. They're trying to run it down your throat every play. 
that doesn't bother the Warriors. And so I think it's going to be tough for them in that series. To the, Their biggest strength is something that the Warriors enjoy. The Warriors switch on defense. Their length causes problems. I also wonder, can Drew Holiday keep it up? He's been phenomenal so far, but you're going to have to rely on him to be a top five, top ten player alongside Anthony Davis. I don't think that's going to be able to be the case in a seven-game series. I think the Warriors win in five and six. Last but not least, a bit of a surprise, the Rockets Jazz. I thought the Rockets initially, especially with Rubio out for the Jazz, uh, would probably walk through this series. But last night, the Jazz came away and and split the series. I do think the strategy by the, the... Utah Jazz defensively was really, really intelligent. They're trying to eliminate them from using ball screens. They're getting up into Harden. They're making him put it on the floor, finishing at the rim. Uh, Rudy Gobert's there to block shots. And then obviously, even last night, the encouraging thing for the Jazz, Donovan Mitchell didn't shoot it great, and they still won the game. Uh, You got Joe Ingles, the guy that looks like he's your local insurance guy, uh, reigning threes. Can the Rockets, uh, they've got, I think there's a kind of an odd mental block there for a couple of those players. We've seen James Harden not perform late in some of the series uh, the past couple years, and then Chris Paul not making it past the, you know, the second round. I, they should overcome that. They've got more talent. James Harden's obviously the MVP. I think they'll still come back and win. I do think this is a surprise. The series will go a little bit longer than expected. I'm thinking we're going to see Sixers wrap or Sixers Cavs and uh, Warriors Rockets in the semifinals. We'll come back and break that down uh, here in the near future, and it should be a fun semifinals in the NBA playoffs. When we come back, we'll be joined by the head coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, my good friend Amy Williams. All right, our first guest this week is uh, one of my favorite coaches uh, in all of college basketball. I think she's one of the best coaches in college basketball. She's got a really unique story uh, in the, her journey to being a head basketball coach and now coaching her alma mater and uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Last year, coming off of a third place finish and being named Big Ten Coach of the Year, welcome coach, Coach Amy Williams. Well, Thanks, Austin. I'm glad to be here with you today. All right. Well, let's get started. You know, I I know a lot about your background. What I want to do, I kind of want to touch on, uh, you know, all the way back to your playing career and kind of leading to where your journey's at now. But tell me a little bit about you grew up playing for your father. He was a high school basketball coach. What was it like playing for your dad? And now that you're a head coach of a major college program, what's that relationship like now um, that, that you're in charge of things and he's on the other side? Yeah, it's. Um, I'll tell you, there were there were highs and lows. I'm I, I'm sure you probably understand a little bit just um, uh, having a dad who's who's got that experience. But uh, I'll tell you, um, you know, when I got kicked out of practice my sophomore year of high school, uh, you know, that's one of my fondest memories when my dad sent me home early. Uh, <laughs> and when I look back at that now, Austin, I think man, I so deserved that. But um, at the time, we kind of worked through some highs and lows. But certainly, um, my dad was a major influence in um, in my decision to want to be a coach. And uh, he still uh, is very present now that he is retired after 41 years of public school teaching and coaching at the high school level. He um, is more free to, to sneak down to Lincoln. And, and my younger sister, who is the head coach at Minnesota State in Mankato and he kind of bounces back and forth you know most people retire um, in um, Arizona or somewhere warm climate 
climate, but he gets to come to Lincoln, Nebraska and Mankato, Minnesota to watch a lot of basketball. And, and he still has lots of opinions. Well, you're probably a lot like me and my dad. You get a lot of good opinions and you probably get those opinions you maybe don't want. But either way, I think you'd rather rather have it. But I'm sure uh, what's what's family Christmas like? You mentioned your sister uh, coaches as well. I know you guys coached against each other last year. Um, is, is it Monday morning quarterback for you? Because that's what it is for me at Christmas around the table. Everybody's got their own opinions on how we ought to be playing. Absolutely. And both of my brothers who were college baseball players, they seem to have more opinions than even my sister, I think. But um, yeah, it, it absolutely is that way. I married uh, a basketball coach that I uh, met when he was coaching at the Division One level and I was on the women's staff at the same university. And, and uh, so I get lots of opinions around the dinner table and, and um, lots of times where we pull out the salt shakers and uh, start diagramming sets or plays or how you should be guarding the ball screen better and and um, there's there's lots of talk but it, it helps me sort through things and I I don't begrudge it one of the neat stories from your past is how you came to play college basketball and uh, share a little bit about that story my understanding was you went to school for academics and then um, you know took had a tryout became a walk-on and then earned a scholarship tell me tell me tell me that story yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I came to the University of Nebraska on academic scholarship, and I was a biology and math double major uh, here at Nebraska and thought that I was on the path to heading to medical school. But I just knew something was kind of missing, and, and I really uh, wanted to have the opportunity. I think one of um, probably the most courageous steps I had to take was just kind of reaching out to the coaching staff here at Nebraska and asking for that opportunity to be considered as a potential walk-on to uh, the program and uh, was very, very fortunate. Um, lots of circumstances kind of um, fell into line to make that happen, but uh, earned my way onto the team as a walk-on and eventually was rewarded with a scholarship and just had a fabulous experience being a Nebraska Cornhusker. I just thought I took a ton of pride in, in wearing Nebraska across my chest and having the opportunity to be a part of that program and um I'm grateful to all the coaches that made that happen. Well, I think a great lesson in that for you know a lot of young kids and even coaches is the fact that you reached out and you were aggressive about it. But being a walk-on, I mean, and, you know, we want walk-ons in our programs that's going to work hard, do the right thing, and, and earn you know those opportunities. And you know, I think it's a good example for young kids that you know you're the head coach of Nebraska now, but that all started because you did the little things right and you worked hard. You weren't entitled. You know, way way back when you played, you earned your opportunity there that led to something bigger down the road. Absolutely. I, you know, that's one of the best lessons. It's uh, been a great reminder for me over the last, um, well, let's just not uh, highlight how many years I've been doing this, but uh, just along the way, you know, many times I've had to pull back to that and just understanding that if you do things the right way, you come in and you work hard, uh, that, that good things tend to happen. And, and I think um, it, it certainly worked that way for my college career. And I think it can uh, for, for young women that are still um, working to make those goals happen. What point did you know you wanted to go into coaching? Was that something planned for your father when you were young you knew, or did that kind of come happen while you were at Nebraska? When did you know? 
To be honest, uh, I think I knew probably uh, when I was was going to practice with my dad and, and early on that that was something that I was extremely passionate about, that I cared about. I loved coming home um, after high school games and sitting down with my dad and watching the uh, game tape and, and learning and spending time with my coaches trying to you know break things down. But um, but you know I I just I kind of put that in the back of my mind because um, I, I was a decent student in, in school and I think everybody kind of just expected um, you know when you when you do well on your ACTs and you do well in school then they think okay you're going to go to law school or medical school or you're going to do something big you know like that and um, so I was kind of just floating along doing I think more what everybody expected me to do more than what I was truly passionate about and it just really took uh, some time after uh, my playing career was over and I was doing an internship at St. Elizabeth's Hospital here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I just kind of maybe an aha moment, and I just recognized, you know, I don't want to go to the hospital every day for the rest of my life, and and um, I really started to evaluate where I felt that I was meant to be and just the impact that all the coaches that I had 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 on my life and I wanted to be able to have that same impact on young women and um, and it took took not too long but you know a little bit of convincing after talking to my parents my mom said you want to you want to do what <laughs> <laughs> after all those uh, biologies and organic chemistries and you know um, but I think my dad kind of probably al- always knew that that was in my blood we had several assistant spots before you landed your first head coaching job. You were at Nebraska Kearney, Texas San Antonio, Oklahoma State, and Tulsa. Obviously, in every one of those positions, you gained some influence, gained some um, you know, experience. But what from we'll pick one of those that maybe had a specific influence on your philosophy or how you recruit or kind of what you do today? Wow, that's uh, that's so difficult, and and you know even uh, the the opportunity. I, I was only at the University of Texas San Antonio for ten months, uh, but it was probably as impactful there. I had an opportunity to uh, have a huge involvement in all of our preseason conditioning and and strength workouts, and uh, you know a lot of the things were shaped um, for me there. But when I think back to even as a graduate assistant at Kearney, Nebraska, I learned how to break down game film from Amy Stevens and you know I think the very different aspects when I got hired at Oklahoma State I played for I worked for two different head coaches at Oklahoma State and um, both of them had very different uh, recruiting philosophies and styles and it provided me an incredible opportunity uh, to really grow with recruiting and see and learn what was going to work and what was not working for me and, and the and the methods that I was um, um, trying and and you know so it's just each one of those stops as assistant coaches I feel like just allowed me to grow I mean I went through uh, great seasons where we won championships I went through um, you know seasons that were a little bit subpar where you learned how to lose and how to bounce back and um, just valuable valuable experiences and and some great mentors that I that I worked with well your first break came with uh, Roger State and uh, you turned that program around eventually led them to an elite eight appearance you know I think as assistant coaches sometimes when you sit in that assistant chair you know you have this mindset of well, you know when I'm in charge I'm gonna do this and when I'm in charge I'm gonna do that 
What did you find the, to be the biggest learning curve when you went from an assistant coach to now being in charge of your own program? You know, when I was an assistant coach, I just like you said, I, I had very strong opinions about how things should be handled. You know, we might have a disciplinary issue that would pop up and I would say, you know, I'd say to my husband, like, I don't know why we don't just kick her off the team and then I'd roll over and go to sleep and, and not even think twice about it. And when you when I became a head coach, I learned very quickly that that's not how things work. You know, you have a disciplinary issue that pops up and you start thinking about how this is going to affect this young woman for the rest of her life and how will it affect the rest of our team and how will it affect uh, the the camaraderie, how will it affect the impressions from the outside of the program and, you, you know, you don't roll over and go to sleep. You know, you toss and turn and you think about those things and you, and you, um, you know, just really spend a lot more time worried about, I think, the, the um, consequences of the decisions that you're making making and and uh, certainly was the case for me when I when I slid that 18 inches over on the bench and it was uh, a big adjustment but you know very fortunate that at Rogers State I was just in a great situation where we were um, a startup program. You know, when I first got hired, they had never had women's basketball there before. And it provided me an opportunity to really learn and kind of, you know, make some mistakes and, and you know, do things the way that, you know, I wanted to try to do it. But I also had um, made a lot of mistakes and was able to bounce back and recover and, and find ways to continue to move that program forward. Well, after you left Rogers State, you ended up at South Dakota, your, you know, home state. Uh, originally. Coaches get jobs for different reasons. Sometimes a coach uh, wins and, and leaves and then there's an opening and sometimes a coach is fired because for different reasons, but oftentimes not being successful. In your particular case, when you went to South Dakota, uh, Ryan Williams had been there. The program was on solid footing, but to that point, that program was the number two program in the state. South Dakota State was clearly the number one. They'd won the Summit League you know, year in and year out. What was your approach knowing that and knowing that for you to reach the kind of goals that you were going to have to achieve, you were going to have to flip that, you know, that level of balance in the state. And what was your going to be approach to do that? You know, the approach for me was just that, first of all, to be extremely grateful to Ryan Williams for what he did. I mean, he went through kind of the dog years, that uh, very difficult transition time where you're not eligible for um, postseason competition. And uh, that's tough uh, when you're transitioning from Division Two to Division One, and you're recruiting competitive players who want to play for something. And he went through those dog years and fortunately uh, left the program in a very good place. I walked into a great situation at South Dakota. I was able to just, you know, we took the approach of let's find small ways to continue to raise the bar. You know, we were left in a good situation. Let's find small ways to just continue to uh, raise the bar. And and we also took the approach that, you know, South Dakota State, we didn't look at that as a negative. We looked at it as an extremely positive that there was somebody that we could look to that um, had set the standard high and it continued to give us something to really strive for and shoot for and I think it helped us raise the raise the bar a little faster than we probably even anticipated. Well, you know, obviously I was in that league and had a chance to coach against you. I really felt 
um, the women's program there at South Dakota, led by you, shifted uh, that balance of, of not just within the, the, the women's game, but I think the interest in the university in general, uh, I noticed quite a bit of a shift. What was it like that first time uh, when you beat them in, in Sioux Falls? I think it was that semifinal game. What was that like uh, to be able to beat them in a tournament setting and then ultimately uh, you know, head to the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, a very special time for our program and for the young ladies. I coached several players on that particular team who grew up in the state of South Dakota and in that area and, and several of them who, you know, who maybe um, did not have the opportunity to go play at South Dakota State. And, and um, you know, for them, it was kind of just um, an absolute um, just, you know, fantastic feeling that we'd kind of gotten over that hump and and found a way uh, to just play loose in that semifinal game and to to knock off South Dakota State and and to put ourselves in a position to win a championship and um, it was a it was a great feeling it was a great step forward but I think more than anything it just proved to everybody within our program and within our athletic department um, that we can do that and that we can we can we can win we can beat that team we can play at that level and we can you know our level our our program has risen to that level well one of the reasons I you know enjoy watching your teams and have continued to follow is your style of play Um, I don't think that you run a cookie cutter system I think there are a lot of cookie cutter systems out there and you don't Uh, your offense is very up tempo Uh, it's balanced it incorporates the post but it also allows freedom for the guards to attack what were the influences that helped shape your philosophy offensively? And then how has it kind of morphed over the years? Yeah, uh, it really has morphed. And it's just so crazy kind of how it's came to be. And it's, you know, we mentioned a lot of the mentors that I've, you know, worked with and for um, uh, along the way. And I think, you know, we took bits and pieces and we, we, we kind of play a combination of, of transition, um, some secondary breaks that we've picked up from, um, from different coaches and then, uh, you know, kind of mixed that with a little bit of, you know, motion, um, and, and then also just kind of some, 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 some set plays can we go to and sprinkle in. And I think it's just, um, it's really evolved along the way and to be honest even the last two years here at Nebraska we've had to make you know certain adjustments to um, to our system just to try to play to the strength of our personnel and um, it's it's continuing it's fun to watch you know as we continue to have to make adjustments to that um, system and and but it's it's certainly a fun I think um, for our players very fun uh program to play in and system to play in because uh, everybody is a threat. Everybody has to be a threat at all times. And there are a lot of different ways and it gives them a lot of freedom and versatility. Well, I always felt too that the balance uh, of your system is what made you guys so hard to guard because you got a lot of easy uh, rim runs and seals from your post players, but you also had that kind of early attack by some of the guards that I was really you know always impressed with. The other thing that's always impressed me 
me about you, and, and I'm going to tell a quick story. I was watching a game uh, online. Uh, you guys were playing North Dakota State your last year there, and it was one of those nights your team didn't have your fastball, just you know, didn't play a great game. You were clearly the better team, but you were down, and, and it was really kind of came down to the end. And, and I told my staff the next way next day, you basically won the game for your team with how you managed timeouts, but also your end of game side out situations. And now with the timeout advance rule, you know, it incorporates more strategy and more side out of bounds. And, you know, I watch the NBA and Brad Stevens is always you know really good about it. I watch you. You're always really good about it. But I'll turn on the TV and be shocked that some of these coaches seem you know, ill-prepared. Walk me through your prep for that. Are you drawing stuff up in the dirt at timeouts? Are you doing it just game in and game out? Or are you taking this stuff and doing it, you know, in the preseason and kind of taking it through the course of the year? Yeah, well, Austin, uh, that particular game you're talking about at North Dakota State, it didn't hurt that I had the um, player of the year in our conference on our team to knock down a couple shots <laughs> on those sideline out-of-bounds plays. But, um, but uh, and, and I... I, I really believe that at certain times I've been better than others, and you know sometimes it's a it's a feel. Um, in this particular game, this player has the hot hand, and so we're going to go to this player. But uh, we try to be prepared for almost all of those situations, and we have, you know, probably around um, ten or so. Um, sideline advance situations that we are consistently working on. I wouldn't say from the preseason, the very beginning parts of the year, but really uh, fairly early on in our season where we're starting to really talk through and look at, you know, what our strengths are as a team and where we want to go in late games and if we need a two and if we need a three and our kids um, have practiced those situations they have confidence, you know, we will at times do a, uh, run those situations against our scout team uh, till we get it right, until we have success, until we find someone that can knock down the shot and, and uh, believe in themselves. And then um, I think our players are much more prepared when those situations come up and much more confident. This past year, I had a chance to watch several of your games and felt like those side out of bounds situations uh, kind of came in handy. Your last year at South Dakota, uh, you won the regular season championship, didn't make the NCAA tournament, but went on a historic uh, run that led to the WNIT championship, which was a really big deal for a mid-major school. And then Nebraska comes calling. Share the emotional high of the possibility of returning to your alma mater, but also the difficulty of leaving a place where you were so comfortable family-wise, you were set up to win. I mean, heck, they won the regular season title this year, and it was a majority of your players. What was that emotional roller coaster like? Uh, you know, it was an absolute um, emotional roller coaster and started from when we came back to practice after the Summit League tournament and how disappointing, uh, how disappointed our players were after winning a regular season title and then to lose in the conference tournament and know that that was going to cost us an opportunity to be in the NCAA tournament, which was what our team's ultimate goal was. And we came back to practice and our players were, were really kind of down and we just had to really stop practice about 10 minutes minutes into that first practice and just kind of refocus and then to watch them kind of embrace that second opportunity to do something special and just throw themselves into that WNIT run. It was really something special. It just uh, meant a lot to me. There were five seniors on that team that were 
um, incredibly special to our program and had had um, done a lot. So um, to win that tournament, it was um, just really very, very um, uh, special and emotional in it in and of itself. It was crazy how uh, the next day after that uh, WNIT championship game, I was just so sick. I couldn't even pick my head up off the pillow. I just, um, I think it just all caught up with me from the season. And I, um, and uh, then, you know, uh, just a, a few short days later, um, uh, I had my first phone call uh, about the possibility of looking at uh, this opportunity at Nebraska. And it was absolutely um, a very, very difficult decision in the sense that um, I was comfortable. I have two daughters that were really thriving in that community. Um, Vermilion had just embraced my family and we were doing well. Um, we felt extremely excited about the recruiting and the direction that our program was heading and the young ladies that we were bringing in. And we were very excited to coach them. So uh, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do uh, in in my life up to this point was to have to walk into that locker room and to talk to those young women at South Dakota. And, and one thing that makes those young ladies so special is, you know, as they were, you know, uh, tears streaming down their eyes, they were giving me hugs and just telling me how proud they were of me and how excited they were for the opportunity because uh, it's just such a special thing to have that opportunity need to go back to your alma mater where you've you know kind of poured blood sweat tears and, and just had you know to, to go back and lead that program and um, I think you know those young women just kind of embracing me and knowing that you know it's gonna be a scary time for them not knowing what the future was gonna hold but yet just being excited for uh, me I think that's another thing that just shows how special those those young ladies were well obviously once it was announced it was a huge deal for you to be able to return to your alma mater in Nebraska part of the Big Ten after that kind of initial uh, excitement wears off, uh, and I know from talking to you, it's a whirlwind of, you know, you're moving your family back and forth. You have got to get going in recruiting. What were your expectations for the program in year one? Uh, to be honest with you, I didn't really have any expectations when I first um, was kind of uh, stepping into the situation. And, and I understand enough that um, it takes just a little bit of time to kind of e evaluate and get a full feel of things before you can start putting um, ex expectations. Even to this day, uh, we never talk about, you know, wins and losses or what we're expected as far as, oh, uh, you know, championships are we're going to win this this number of games we're going to go to this tournament or you know um, our measures for success are just so much different and the one thing that my staff and I really stressed when we were making that move to Nebraska was that uh, for us success is just going to be taking our time to establish our culture and our um, mindset that if you want to have a good team then you have to be a great teammate and that's really what we spent our first year trying to lay that foundation well you go through that first year you end up with seven wins you come back this next year and you lose jess shepherd uh the you know all world player and somehow is, is eligible at notre dame and expectations i would suspect weren't for the big 10 incredibly high and yet your squad has a tremendous year. They got really hot in the middle of the Big Ten season and ultimately finished tied for third and get the third seed in the Big Ten tournament. My question to you is, how did you do it? And did you see it coming? 
no, we didn't see it coming. Um, no, it kind of just um, snowballed and, and it was just great to see. But uh, the, the thing that I really say is that this particular group of young women just really bought into the idea that it was bigger than themselves and they just played very selfless and they genuinely bought into the idea that I can't do any of this on my own, but if I just do my part um, and it was just a unique, everybody, you know, all the Big Ten coaches wanted to come to me and say, you know, like, you know, we had one second team, all Big Ten performer, but for the most part, there was really no superstar on our team, just a bunch of people that were willing to play their role and do their job and and, um, play with confidence. And at certain times, you know, I could say this player really probably won us the ball game. And then I would, I, you know, probably could point to about eight or nine different players throughout the season that, you know, we could point to and say that it was just a true team effort. And it was uh, something that was really fun and special to be a part of. After a tremendous run uh, made to the semifinals of the Big Ten tournament, you guys were awarded uh, an NCAA tournament at large bid, which I know was huge for you guys, uh, went on to the tournament, suffered a, a tough loss. But I have to think this was a major springboard uh, for your future mm-hmm. with this group of players and the kids that you have re- uh, you're returning. So talk about that NCAA experience for this particular group. Yeah, actually, it's a springboard in a lot of different ways because um, obviously you get a taste of that NCAA tournament and it just kind of creates a hunger and, and just an excitement to want to to be back there and um, having that opportunity again. But also that game taught us a lot about the things that you know, I think it was just a really strong lesson for us in uh, the sense that we uh, could have been a lot more competitive in that game had we not been out-rebounded by 20 rebounds. And so I think it was just a real lesson. Almost every one of my players in their postseason meetings uh, came into my office and talked about, you know, Coach, we know how much you've been harping on the rebounding aspect and um, and it really cost us. And, and, you know, it was a sick feeling sitting in that locker room knowing that something that we can control um, a little bit better than we did was the reason why we were not advancing. And, and so I think uh, for us, it's definitely going to be a, a, a springboard that um, opportunity, we're going to take that, um, have that taste, and use that as a as a really big motivator for us this off season. So, you know, I, I noticed in the rebound battle, you guys got re- out rebounded 49 to 27. And I know from competing against you, your teams are always physical and rebounding is something you put a premium on. I expect this off season, probably uh, that will be an area of focus. It will be. And uh, extra uh, focus placed on, on the rebounding, no question about it. And I think, uh, you know, big Part of that is just kind of developing that mindset and discipline uh, to be um, putting that in the forefront of your mind and how important that is. But also, um, you know, we're we're excited about some players that um, are going to be joining our program that, you know, we feel like have the ability to, you know, go out of their area to grab rebounds and can really help us in that manner. Well, you led me right into my next question, which is your recruiting philosophy. Share me share with us a little bit about that. And, and one of my observations is this. We live in a world where uh, social media, you see certain programs, uh, they hand out scholarships like candy. I mean, you know, Oprah, you get a scholarship and you get a scholarship and you see it all the time. One thing I've noticed, and I think you're similar to me in this regard, 
I don't see scholarships being handed out just because you went and saw a kid one time and you liked how they played. Um, they've got to, you know, you've got to, you guys put your time in, they got to come to campus. Talk a little bit about your recruiting philosophy and why I think you guys have had such a strong group when they come to campus. Yeah, you know, for us, uh, you know, the scholarship offer will be in a part of our program. We just understand, we just, uh, we really um, value fit and uh, we, we, place a lot of emphasis on how things are going to fit together and uh, for me it just seems a little superficial to go watch a player you know one time between the lines and yes you might think that the way they play the game would fit perfectly into your system and exactly what your team needs on the court but um, until I've had an opportunity to really look um, a player in the eye and and spend some really face-to-face time communicating and giving them that opportunity to to know me and look me in the eye and understand that you know we really want to start all relationships out with a trust and and those things are very important to me and so we uh, we really try to take our time we value scholarship offers and the players that we recruit know uh, that if they hold a scholarship offer from the University of Nebraska then uh, we are extremely serious we've done uh, a lot of homework we have spent our time talking to coaches and counselors and teachers and whoever we can um, to to try to learn as much as we can about that individual and that if they um, have a scholarship offer from the University of Nebraska women's basketball they know that um, it's we believe that in all aspects, off the court, on the court, as part of our family, that they would be a fantastic fit. It always surprises me uh, the other way when when kids are offered just based on, you know, one performance. I always joke around and say, you know, I, I was attracted to my wife the first time when I saw her. But if I'd gone <laughs> up to her and proposed on the first, uh, you know, and said, would you marry me? She would have laughed and ran the other direction. So, you know, why would it be indifferent in these cases? Why wouldn't there be a relationship built? So I think you and I definitely agree on uh, you know, the approach to recruiting. We're the same way. We don't just uh, we just don't throw things out there. Uh, we want to build those relationships. Talk a little bit. I know you've got a great class coming in, but one that I think slid under the radar in our particular state, Leah Brown, um, you guys identified her ability and did not hesitate um, to offer her a scholarship and bring her out there. She's a stud. And, and I've had a chance to watch her uh, up close. Talk about what she'll bring to, uh, to your team next year. I lost you again. Austin. Can you hear me? Oh, there it comes. Yep, it's back. Okay. So I, I heard you say, um, you know, about, you know, Leah, you've watched her a few times and then it kind of cut out for okay. a second. Just talk. Uh, so I can kind of edit this part. Out. Yeah. All, all I just wanted to do is talk about Leah and what she's going to bring to your program. Yeah, we are just uh, so excited about Leah and um, the college career that we just think, you know, she is poised to have. She is a very special competitor and uh, she kind of has a little bit of a chip on her shoulder, which is not a bad thing because she knows how to harness that and and uh, she plays. But, uh, you know, the, the big thing that attracted me to her um, right away is just her versatility. Um, she... 
good three-point shooter, can score from the perimeter, is strong and physical and will take it and, and be able to finish at the rim. But I think the thing that separates her is um, she's kind of still possesses what, what we feel like sometimes is a little bit of a lost art form in, in, in our game, and that's the mid-range game. And I just think that uh, she's very capable of having an elite-level uh, mid-range game. She can really elevate up and at six feet, six one, um, in the wing position, you know, that is very tough to guard. Uh, she plays hard on both ends and she, um, she, you know, can go and, and get rebounds. I think averaging, you know, nearly 12 rebounds a game in her senior year, um, just pretty special player. She sees the floor. Well, I just, uh, really do feel like she kind of maybe has slid under the radar, but, uh, she understands how to work. Uh, she, she's got something to prove and I just, um, you know, she, every time I talk to her, she just, uh, she's just chomping at the bit to, to get up to Nebraska and get started with us. And, um, I just think her attitude and her, um, you know, willingness to want to come and prove that, you know, she really wants to help Nebraska compete for a Big Ten championship. And that's her mentality. And it's not about, you know, you know, what can you do for me? And, how, you know, it's more about I can't wait to come there and be a part of that team and that program and help elevate Nebraska to Big Ten championship caliber. And I just I love that about her. We're so excited that uh, she's she's going to be a Husker. Yeah, I have no doubt she's going to be a heck of a player. A couple uh, random questions that I've kind of put together when I ask you. I noticed your degree, mathematics, background. How do you utilize that today with the role analytics is playing in our game? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I've always been, you know, a numbers person. And then um, imagine just like a kid in the candy store when I came to Nebraska and uh, in our Nebraska Athletic Performance Lab, we have an analytics department and uh, some, uh, definitely some uh, workers up there that (laughs) are, are way out of my intelligence level and and I thought you know being a math major was kind of impressive but I'm not even in the same ballpark Um, but the way that they can help me analyze things just with breaking down um, you know our most productive three player lineups um, you know and when these three kids are in the game together this is how much point production and this you know and then also you know we can take to them and say all right every time that we run follow uh, what's what's the results what's the point production every time we run um push you know and and each one of our breakdowns you know we can talk and really analyze you know what of the things that we're executing is this particular team this year uh being more successful with and and maybe even certain times of the year that's differently and uh, so i just absolutely love it i um you know this year we spent a lot more time uh, getting into analyzing things that are not in your typical box score just um just the the updated you know the statistics that the nba has kind of gone to just trying to evaluate things like uh shots contested and um you know things that don't necessarily show up and there's a little a little bit of uh, flexibility on on your judgment on uh, you know on what is a contested shot versus what is not but um certainly the way my brain works i like to break it all down and analyze as much as i possibly can the other things that really uh, intrigues me uh, about you and your coaching staff, 
is a lot of staffs, uh, there's a tier to the way they pay their staffs. And so you've got your top assistant and your second and kind of your third. In your particular staff, there's been, there's no hierarchy. Um, and I think the neat thing about that is your staff's been with you for quite some time. There's a tremendous amount of loyalty. What made you do that? And was that something that you had to convince your AD about, um, either both at South Dakota or even at Nebraska? Yeah, often, I, you know, it's interesting. I spent, you know, nine, ten years as an assistant coach myself. And so I kind of uh, feel like I credit that um, experiences and those experiences so much to um, to some of the things that um, I've learned even before I had my first opportunity to be a head coach. But um, just understanding that and, you know, we, we talk all the time to our teams about, um, you know, every every player is important and we really need to kind of establish that um, that mindset that you know if if you're the the one who's scoring the most or you're the one who's getting the most rebounds or you're the one who's setting all the screens you know all of those jobs are important and uh, I think that you know I began doing that when I first got to be um, a division one head coach trying to just create the mindset to my coaching staff and and all of our staff that uh, everybody is important and um, that kind of just uh, gradually got to that philosophy of, of just really not trying to to make that hierarchy, making anybody on the staff feel like they were less important or that their duties were, were less important. And um, it's really worked out well for us. I think what's happened is I've been blessed to put extremely loyal and selfless and egoless people around me. And so they can really buy into that. And they genuinely um, are just about what do we need to do to uh, row this uh, ship in the same direction in the right direction and just what what kinds of things can I do to help out and uh, there's just not a lot of egos and then the thing with that is um, when you have a coaching staff and um, a, a support staff that buys into that and just doesn't get bogged down in, in who's who's the top assistant or whose recruit was this or who's you know we just all do it all together um, and those egos disappear it's amazing how that just um trickles down into your team and I just think it's been such an incredible um, model for uh, my team to be able to kind of see um, those those selfless people working every day just to try to do what they can to help our program uh, continue to raise the bar and, and it's been really uh, very successful for us it's an enjoyable coaching staff to come and be around every day we just uh, enjoy each other's company you know I, I, I view them as my equals and and uh, just a, a group of people that are all here working together to try to make this thing uh, better and to try to influence young women. And um, yes, there's been a little, uh, you know, pushback and surprise at times, just, you know, how we're doing things. And, and, you know, people don't really understand that. It's not your typical way of structuring things out. But uh, fortunately, I've had a couple of very good administrations who um, trust uh, me to structure things the way that is going to be the most successful for us. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I love your staff. I've gotten to know them quite well. And it, to me, the neat part is the consistency that you've been able to have with yeah. them. One of the other things I think is pretty neat is being at Nebraska, obviously football's king. Um, yeah. They just made a new hire in Scott Frost. Now, this past year, we were playing in a Thanksgiving tournament down at UCF, and they were playing their rival, South Florida. And uh, the energy and excitement around that program with him at the helm uh, was was unbelievable. How do you, how do you utilize the football program and selling the women's basketball program and have you had any interaction with Scott Frost yet? Well, Scott and I were both student athletes here at Nebraska at the same time and so we were very familiar with each other before um, he even came back so it's been really kind of fun. I just um, went to his uh, press conference when they announced him and um, and uh, just kind of excited to welcome him back to Nebraska. I think um, he has proven to be an incredible leader. I think that some of the same things that um, that I really value, it's very obvious that Scott does as well. And when he came back to Nebraska, very similarly to what I did two years ago, is he brought his entire coaching staff with him from uh, UCF, people that he trusted, that he knew would do things the right way and, and uh, something that I could really relate to. Um, and so it's been really fun having him back. To be honest, you know, the two of us have both been extremely busy and so it's kind of um, you know in head coaches meetings we kind of bump into each other and you know but I'm very excited to um, he he has been uh, the last couple of weeks just on occasion I've seen him down playing noon ball with his uh, his coaching staff in our gym and so uh, we've been able to bump into him he has uh, absolutely expressed a willingness to uh, help us with recruiting efforts whenever possible but to be honest with you here um, we're just a firm believer that you know the rising tide raises all ships and uh, you know with football being king and football uh, doing great that just creates more and more energy and excitement for the University of Nebraska and our entire athletic department uh, for us to be able to take our recruits to a, a football game in the fall on uh, a Saturday and and uh, the fact that Nebraska has sold out every football game here since the 1960s um, it's just an incredible atmosphere that really uh, sells itself. It's a fun thing to be a part of as a student athlete and and certainly uh, doesn't hurt for our recruiting efforts. Well, and kudos to that administration for bringing back two former players to lead their programs. I think, you know, for yourself and and Scott, I mean, obviously you have a a deeper understanding of what that university uh, is and and the uh, intricacies and the, the, you know, the greatness that it can be. So um, I think that's pretty cool. My last question, I'll get you out of here on this. I think you're a tremendous role model for, you know, your players, uh, for other coaches, but, you know, I've seen firsthand um, you traveling with your two little girls and uh, them, you know, being at games and being at practices. And I remember coming at South Dakota, you know, shoot around. I'd see them out there on the floor. How do you maintain, I think this is important for young, you know, young coaches, but specifically young female coaches. How do you maintain that balance? Uh, And I'm sure it obviously helps a little bit that your little ones love basketball. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, that helps a lot. And, um, and you know, having administration that kind of knows and understands and is supportive um, of, of you being, you know, a wife and a mother really helps. Um, the fact that I've never um, felt uncomfortable in my role as a head coach to have my daughters um, around at practice and around for games and at shoot-arounds is, um, is one thing that I just am, am extremely grateful for. But, um, you know, I think um, we do have to make some sacrifices. Um, you know, there's times where we're on the road and my daughters have a basketball game or a soccer game or a school concert um, that I have to miss out on. But uh, we certainly try to make up for that by just, you know, we feel like that those two um, young ladies are, are getting, uh, number one, you know, 12 to 14 incredible role models in their life. Uh, that they get to be around and that they have kind of special relationships with. And when the Huskers come over for, uh, for dinner and, you know, they just, uh, just get giddy, you know, they're just excited to be around those, those special young women and have that kind of special touch with them. But, uh, but also just, you know, occasionally getting to travel with the team and some of the perks that come along with that, um, you know, we just feel like are really good uh, trade-offs, but uh, I just, you know, really try as hard as I can Austin to, keep my family, my husband included, just as close to our program as possible. I think it's good for uh, for me. It's healthy for me. It provides stress relief in my life to, to have them around, but also um, it's healthy for our players to be able to see uh, somebody that they um, are working with on a daily basis, you know, give everything to their job and to be able to, to, to prove to them that, you know, you can be good at your job and you can also be a fantastic wife, a fantastic mother. And, um, I think that's an important thing that we continue to uh, mentor and model, uh, to the young women that come through our program. Well, coach, I appreciate you joining us. I know how busy you are. And, uh, from Indianapolis, we're definitely pulling for you. I try to watch as many games uh, as, as I can when you're on TV and, uh, we're looking forward to next year to see what you, uh, you guys will do after building on this year. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Austin. I really appreciate it. It was a fun talk with you today. Once again, a special thanks to Amy Williams for taking time out to join us today. NBA playoffs still underway. A lot of good basketball to watch. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to sign up for Parks Pod on iTunes. Subscribe, rate it, and uh, everybody have a great week. 